This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have Bill Biggs. Uh, Bill works with law firms uh, to help their culture and leadership and help them really excel and thrive in today's world. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Just turned 52 yesterday, had a wonderful day, getting ready to have another wonderful year, another good trip around the sun. So, Well, congrats. Thanks. So tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do to help lawyers. So about 12 years ago, I got into the industry. I was actually a pastor for 10 years and have been in organizational leadership for most of my life, most of my professional life. And I just love culture. I love teams. I love the idea of coaching, played sports in high school. and I just believe that in today's law firms, we see so often that, you know, culture is going to happen one way or the other. It's just a question of whether or not that culture and that leadership environment is what you want. And so what I do for firms is I help them design their culture. I help them grow their leaders and grow their leadership team and their leadership structure. We design out their leadership structure and I help them get what they want, which is usually more profitability an opportunity to have a team that loves them and loves the work. We create what I call true believers, a team full of people who have ownership mentality and believe in the work that we do, are passionate about it, and are there for more than a paycheck. Usually when you create those things and help develop those things, uh, law firm owners are pretty happy with the result and um, makes them proud of their firm. And I enjoy seeing that. So what is culture? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I think it is one of the most overused terms throughout corporate America and least understood. A lot of people try to define culture as just, you know, being nice or the fun stuff about your office uh, environment. And I was actually asked the question uh, by the folks at Litify uh, for a conference two years ago, asked the question of, can you create a talk that talks about how culture can actually increase your ROI, can make you more profitable, a larger return on investment? And so I really dug into this definition and I looked at it from a socio-anthropological view. And really, when you look at it that way, think about the way we look at culture across the world. It's about people groups and it's about their values. It's about a common language. It's about their accepted traditions and norms. It's about how they interact with one another. It's about what's okay and what's not within the culture or within that people group. And so when we take that idea that culture really is everything, it's everything about what we believe, about how we talk with one another, about what uh, the accepted norms and traditions are and rituals within the environment. When we think about culture like that in the corporate context, in a law firm context, and say it's really everything. It's what we believe about the work we do. It's our core values. It's the way we talk to one another, our common language. It's how we treat our clients, what we believe about our clients, and it's what we believe about how we treat one another. That stuff becomes powerful. We begin to dig into it, and uh, it helps transform organizations. So a short version, I know that was a long answer, a short, succinct answer to your question, what is culture? Well, culture is everything. So what are some issues you see? You know, law firms tend to be smaller organizations, at least plaintiff's firms tend to be not as huge. There's a few exceptions. But what are some issues you see with law firm culture? So I think, you know, most people start out, most owners, entrepreneurial lawyers, they start out their firms with very good intentions and they want good things. But I think one of the big issues is they're not intentional enough. They don't realize that leadership and culture must be designed, that the way it just unfolds usually isn't what you want it to be. 
And so I think number one is the intentionality piece is often missing because it's just not something that we're taught. And it's definitely not something that's taught in law school. So I think that's one big piece. I think another piece is, and these go together, right? These are all connected. I think a lack of understanding of the creation of a leadership structure and scaling, what I would call scaling with leadership. In other words, mapping out and designing that as we grow from one person to five people, to 10 people, to 20, to 40, to 50, as we grow, we need to already be ahead of the game in terms of what our leadership team, what our our leadership structure is going to look like. For instance, it's uncanny how often I see this and some other guys in the industry that do some of the similar things or think similar, have similar questions, observe similar things. Uh, Chad Dudley is a good example. He and I talk a lot about this. Usually at about 20 to 30 people, a law firm has been run and been led by force of personality by the owner of the partners. But when it reaches that number, it gets a little chaotic. It gets a little squirrely and out of hand. Well, why? Because that person or even those two people or a handful of people, partners, they don't know how to manage that number and they don't know everybody as well. And their personality uh, doesn't saturate the culture as much because the culture is expanding, the footprint's expanding. So I get a lot of calls at firms that are at 20 or 30 they're in a in a tough situation because they haven't prepared for their leadership needs. Yeah, and I think that's really what I was aiming at. The last question is, you know, what are the problems, the tough situations people get when they don't, when they're not intentional about culture and leadership and it just kind of, it kind of happens and not necessarily the way they want it to happen. Yeah. So I, I think a couple of things that happen there often is that they get people, and I call these C players. If you were to, there's a great grid, Simon Sinek, I believe he was one of the, the originators of this idea, a grid of the A, B, C, and D player. Well, the C player on that grid is someone who's actually a high performer. They, they do their job well, but culturally they're toxic. They are a low performer when it comes to culture. And I think a lot of firms, a lot of businesses in general, hold on to those people because the performance is high. They're making fees. They're, they're good at what they do. And yet, they're toxic to the people around them. And over time, sometimes quickly, they will erode the entire culture and the end result of the organization will be worse than what it started with. And the leader, the partner, the owner has held on to that person because all they can see is, wow, they're good at trial. They're a good lawyer. They're, they're good at what they do. They're a high performer, but they're bringing everybody else down. So whether that's because they're a gossip, they bring around drama, they're toxic to people, they don't you know, they're, they're offensive. They bring down the whole organization and yet they themselves are a strong performer. So it's hard to get rid of them. It's hard to say we've got to move this person on when really, if you don't do that, uh, it's like having a cancer uh, in your body. You've got to get rid of it. So I, I think that's one of the issues that happens a lot when culture isn't intentional, when people haven't designed it. I also think that you, you also see issues with, as we mentioned, or as I said earlier, drama and gossip become a big thing. Look, most firms, most businesses fail, not because of bad business ideas, but because of internal fracture and interpersonal issues. People can't get along. People have a hard time getting along. And look, we, you know, you can look all around us. We've got folks that are, you know, having all kinds of, all kinds of issues, emotional issues, having a hard time getting along with each other. They bring that into their workplace. It doesn't stop at the door. And if you don't have a, a, a design for that, if you haven't hired to prevent that and to bring in the people that you really want, you're going to have interpersonal problems and it's probably going to tear down the firm or at least hold it back. Yeah, I've been through a lot of that in my career, unfortunately, before I've learned and I'm not perfect at it yet, but before I've learned to become a lot more intentional. So what are some of the things people can do to be intentional about their culture? Yeah, well, I, I think and, and this is not a plug for me at all or for Vista, which is um, a great organization that I consult with, Tim Mackey and, and that team. I think sometimes people need to bring in a leadership consultant of some kind, or, or even if it's another firm that they admire, go and visit that firm. If you see it's working somewhere, go and learn. So I think one of the things about intentionality is to say, I, I'm, I'm the problem. I'm the leader. I like to say every problem is a leadership problem. If you sense that there's a leadership deficit in your organization, then you've got to be the person to step up 
and to do something about it. So you go and get the expert help. You go and see somebody who's doing it right and you learn what they do, right? Uh, Tim Mackey says this, rip off and duplicate, right? R&D yeah. is not, it's not research and development. It's rip off and duplicate. See it done right and go and learn how to do it yourself. Uh, so that, that's one thing. I think very tangibly, another thing is the start with the hiring process. Start with who you're bringing onto the team and be very thoughtful and again, intentional about what, how you want to build your team and what type of people, not just uh, somebody who can do the job. That's probably going to be a problem later on. You're going to regret that you didn't put more effort into uh, screening people. I created something called the shadow process where, you know, in an organization, every candidate comes in and once they meet a certain stage, they meet with five different people on the team. And those five different people on the team uh, get to spend 30 or 45 minutes each with the candidate. And then those four or five people on the team get to have a vote, an independent vote about whether or not that person should be brought on the team. And if it's not unanimous, then I don't hire them. And wow. so that gives that gives buy-in, right? And that, that could be an attorney who's coming in, a big trial lawyer who's coming in to, to interview for a position in a firm, but the receptionist gets a real bad vibe from him or her and they say, no, well, then they're not hired. And the team rallies around that. They love that because they now feel like they have a say in who they work with. And they have a, a responsibility and a privilege to help create their own team. And um, it works wonders for helping culture. So that's a practical piece, the coaching, the practical piece. And then the third thing that I would say that's practical, but it's harder to do than it sounds, is to take a step back and to say, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? And to go through this process of creating a purpose statement for your firm, what you're really about. And then also to create core values. Again, another buzzword that's way overused, but the heart of the matter is, is still very good. Core values are absolutely needed in a firm because if you don't know who you are, then you don't know how to communicate that to the rest of your team and they don't know who they are and the identity of the firm gets diluted over time. I will tell you that that works so well. You know, we've started, we've been working on this for two or three years. I, I, you know, time starts compressing, sure. <laughs> but yeah. you know, we start every, and it, and it feels silly, but I'm still doing it. We start every single meeting, every single morning with our purpose, our three core values and our three strategies for success. Love it. Love every, it. Every time. And it really does make a difference because then when you go back and you look at making a decision, sometimes like, Ooh, well, do we take this case or not? Well, what are our core values? What are our strategies? Yeah. Does this fit in with who we are and what we're doing, what our plans are? I love that, Michael. That I call that alignment. You're aligned, right? I mean, that your decision making's aligned, your people are aligned, and that happens because you know your core values and you're reinforcing them. What you brought up was so good. Reinforcing them every at every opportunity. I do have a question. I want to go back to the circle back. You talked about having, you know, your five people, you the, the people go and they have to interview with five people, the five people be unanimous. Yeah. I don't know if it has to be five, but you know, a, a number of people. Right, sure. Um what do you say to people say, well, look, in today's environment, you can't interview someone will get another job by the time you put them through that whole process that, you know, it's too competitive trying to hire people. There's a, a worker shortage. You can't you just can't do that nowadays. That's great. Great question. And, and I have run across that and been asked that question. Look, I think you need to streamline that process as much as possible. And there's a way to do it. In other words, if you have the ability to get that person on a Zoom or even bring them in for an interview normally then you can get it lined up so that you can get at least three to four people back to back to back on a Zoom call or on, you know, in an interview. In other words, what I'm saying is this can be knocked out in a few hours. My whole idea of the shadow process can be done in a day, can be done in, in okay. a, a reasonably short amount of time. Now, it takes coordination. It takes coordination and availability on the part of your team. And I won't go into all the details here because it, it can get into some minutia, but it's very doable. And what I would say is, even though it takes some coordination, the end result is so much better and saves you so much time to do it right the first time. So you don't have to do it over and over and over again because you got the wrong person that it's well worth it. I will tell you that we, because of frustration, uh, because of, of perceived worker shortage, I allowed someone to make a hire for me without me even meeting the person first or interviewing and without, you know, going through the entire process because I, I was told, well, this person has another job offer. 
if we don't act quick, you know, I, I think we're going to lose her. This is a good candidate. And it was clear from the her first day at work that this wasn't going to work. And it just, she got, was crazier and crazier as time went on until a month or two later, we were right back where we were in the drawing board. If we had, uh, if she wasn't willing, right the first time, if yeah. we just done it right the first, yeah, we would have lost out on this person, but this person turned out to be an incredibly toxic <laughs> candidate That's anyway. Right. That stuck and, through because we didn't go through the full process. Absolutely. And, and to those who say, ah, I can't waste time. I've got to hire because there's a hiring shortage. And be, Well, think about every one of them has probably experienced what you said. We made a bad hire because we were in a rush. We had her for a month. We had her for three weeks. Or worse yet, we had her for six months. We yeah. had him for a year because <laughs> we were unwilling because we were so, you know, stressed or, or you know, overwhelmed with need that we wouldn't get rid of the person. Now they're that C player, that culture problem. But here's the thing. Think about all the time that you missed out looking for the right person because you thought you had them. And so you worry about, you know, oh, we got to give them an offer quick. Well, you hire the wrong person. And as soon as you do that, all those other people that could have been the right person, they're now not getting interviewed. They're not going through your process because you already made a hire. So do it right the first time. That's the and, and frankly, there's always a shortage of great employees, no matter what the economy is, because really, and truly, the, the truly great people aren't looking around a whole lot. They're really hard to find. And so no matter what, you're going to have to go screen through a lot. We, after that, that went back and said, we, we are not going to ever skip a step again. Yeah. Uh, and, and to your point there, there's always a shortage. That is why. And, and look, this culture thing, it's not easy. But it's and it's also a long play. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But to the point that you just made, that's why we want to create and architect a phenomenal culture, because when we do, we'll attract those A players. People will want to come work for us and we won't have to go out and dig them up or, you know, and find them in other places and poach them or whatever, or just hope that they're going to be available when we have a need. Nope, they'll want to come work. They'll know that we are one of the best places to work in town or in America and they'll seek us out, which is a huge benefit for recruiting. Yeah. I think another huge benefit for culture is it allows you to recruit for aptitude and develop the skills with internally. In other words, find people that have the right attitude, the right skill set, the right abilities, but maybe not have any experience in the, in the industry. Wow. It, Michael, you and I are so on the same wavelength. I'm excited to talk more, even offline about this. I have said for years, I don't really care that much about experience. I mean, there are some, there's some areas and some things where you do need experience, but I want attitude and aptitude all day long. You give me somebody who's going to be a great culture fit and they're intelligent and I'll turn them in and, and they have want to, they want to be a part of what we do. They, they have the makings of being a true believer with what we do and being passionate about what we do, hey, we can turn them into an A player. We can give them the skills and the experience. I would take that any day over somebody who's questionable in culture but has a lot of experience in the industry. One thing I've found is sometimes when we hire people with a lot of experience, it's actually worse because in my, I don't know if you found this, but I've found that most law firms are dysfunctional. Plaintiff defense, big, small. When I worked at a you know, 200 lawyer office in New York City at a big Wall Street firm down to, you know, a one lawyer office in Brownsville, Texas, I found just pretty universal dysfunction. And yeah. so it's almost like uh, having to unlearn other people's bad habits are, well, the other lawyer I used to work for wanted it this done this way. I want to do it that way because that's not how I know how to do it, not the way y'all do it. And it's like a one year process where they either, they either buy in or they get out. Have you had any experience with that? Hundred percent. Again, we're we're very aligned on that idea and that perspective. I, yes, and and look, I liken it. I'm a big sports fan, so I liking I liken it to when you bring a veteran player onto another team. A big piece of that is is that veteran player going to bring the right stuff, the right culture? Are they going to be able to mesh with what the coach is wanting to do with the vision of the team, the purpose of the team, the existing teamwork and leadership and chemistry? And if they're not, that veteran has a potential, especially if they came from a dysfunctional place. And as you said, a lot of firms are dysfunctional or it may not be that they're just that they're all the way to what I would call dysfunctional. But they are they, they're just kind of neutral, which, you know, they're just kind of blonde. 
once a person has been in that environment and they come into a new environment that's vibrant, that emphasizes culture, they can be a detractor and it can be a, a big setback. So I agree with you. I, the firms that I've worked with and the firms that I've helped build, I prefer building on attitude, aptitude, want to, true believers, even people who haven't been in the industry or even people who haven't practiced the type of law that we're doing, but they want it. It takes a little longer and you do need experience in certain positions for sure. But in general, I'm not averse at all. In fact, I'm favorable to hiring what I would call young. And that doesn't mean chronological age necessarily. That means experience. Yeah, we have totally gone to that too. Leadership, how does a firm, you know, especially when you're going from, I'm doing everything myself, you know, I've got three or four people working for me to now I'm getting bigger and I need help. How does a firm design its leadership structure? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I think, again, number one, you look at other firms that are doing it right. You get ideas, you reach out to experts who have done this stuff. But just in a few quick soundbite hits here, I think one of the things when you're transitioning from the owner bring, being the primary leader to realizing they need to bring in other leaders or create them is that you start with the creation of a leadership team or an executive team and you figure out who you want on that team and why you want them there and whether or not that can scale. Uh, then I think the next step is to very intentionally think about a mid People call it a mid-management layer. I'm not a fan of the term management because I do think language matters. Processes and systems are managed. People are led. So I call it a mid-leadership level. And that usually means folks who are going to end up starting out with three or four direct reports. So maybe that's your case managers or your paralegals, or maybe it's an attorney team lead. But you add these layers first. And I, I work from the top down. I believe that you add your top layer. You get your leadership right at the highest level first. You prioritize that. And that means you. That means then your executive team around you. Or you can just call it your leadership team if you're not ready to call it an executive team. And then as you grow and grow, probably by the time you're at that 30 to 40 member mark, you probably need a mid-level leadership team as well. And then... Well, and I won't say in the end, this should, be, should have been designed and thought about as these things were being built. You've got to have a plan for how you're going to grow these folks. Leadership just doesn't happen, right? It, it doesn't just naturally people, oh, well, they're, you know, it, it's working. Most of the time, it has to be by design. And so you need to be thinking about how I'm going to develop my leaders, whether that's through a meeting structure, whether that's through professional development, through conferences, through book reading. In my systems and, and what we do with Vista, I want to see a weekly or at least bi-weekly leadership meeting at the various levels. And I want a piece of that leadership meeting every week or every two weeks to be professional development. We're reading through a book together. We're watching a seven-minute TED Talk and discussing it. We're talking through issues uh, so that people can see how I'm thinking about them and, and how I want us to process and, and decision-make. That leadership development piece at every level is often missed and people just have meetings, organizations, firms will have meetings just to solve problems and that's it. Well, at the end of the day, you're not developing your leaders. They're not growing. And if, if you don't have some that just by chance happen to be natural at leadership, then you're going to have a leadership deficit over time. And so when we're putting our leadership teams together, I know this is an issue I've evolved in. I just wanted to hear your take. Do you recommend that a law firm specifically only have lawyers on their leadership team or that they include non-lawyers on their leadership team? I would always recommend that it be a mix. And I think there's a case can be made for various different structures. It can look differently. There's not just one way. But I think most firms need leadership that comes from both the lawyer space and the non-lawyer space. The reason I would say that is, at least in the the firms that I've seen that it functioned the highest, I believe that you want your lawyers to spend most of their time lawyering. You hire them with a very specific skill set in mind. You want them to be freed up to do what they do best. And there's nothing about being a lawyer that automatically equips you to be a leader or vice versa. And there's nothing about being a non-lawyer either way. 
I think you need people at every level. So I wouldn't have naturally, I wouldn't have a lawyer leading paralegals. I would have a paralegal team lead. I, I think that's a better structure. I don't think you need your accounting team and your finance team led by a lawyer. I think you need a financial person. So I think you you play to the skill sets and what's needed. And look, firms are more and more. I'm not saying it can't be done the other way, but firms across America that I see that are the most successful, they are operated, they they are approached as businesses and organizations, not just as law firms. Well, I will tell you, we used to just have like the three lawyers with their name on the door, uh, and then we'd meet every quarter and without non-lawyers uh, in the group. And what I found is we would spend an hour, two hours uh, trying to solve a problem. Then we'd go back to our operations manager and found out that that problem had no longer exists and had yeah. worked out a month <laughs> or two before. But yeah. we just, you know, we we're just trying to go from memory what we thought the issues were without involving the people that were in the trenches on some of those issues. Uh, so, you know, it was a not just not only a great waste of time, but not getting the same amount of buy in. Whereas when we added our operations manager and used to be a marketing director when we had one uh, to the leadership team, you know, we got a lot more actionable intelligence from what was going on on a day-to-day basis. We got a lot more buy-in and, and frankly, we got a lot of great ideas mm-hmm. and some good discernment. Some, you know, sometimes I come up with ideas that aren't going to work in the real world and, you know, having people can, that can explain to me why this won't work is sometimes really important. Absolutely. You know, again, I think the issue that you're touching on has to do with the different layers of leadership and who is where you might be, it might be that you have a partner's meeting. You have three partners that started the firm and there may be a level to the organization where it's just the three of the partners that are making very, very, very high level vision related directional decisions. But I think in every firm, there needs to be an executive or high level leadership team where there is representation from the major departments in the firm of the leadership of the major departments of the firm. And so often, especially in larger firms, a lot of those folks are not going to be lawyers. Something else I tried, and uh, I've tried a lot of things that didn't work over the years. And one thing I tried that didn't work is I said, okay, I I know that, frankly, management is not my strong point. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot better at being a lawyer than being a manager. And so I would try just hiring a manager and telling people, I suck at management. The manager's going to manage. I'm with a lawyer. And it always turned into a toxic soup within three years when I did that, mm. uh, when I was not actively involved. Why is, do you have any idea why that would be? I would say the first thing that I would look into is were you and that manager were you guys fully aligned? In other words, did they know exactly what you wanted out of the firm? And I think that's critical uh, for this to work well, for this model where you have lawyers, non-lawyers, where you have professional leaders, whether that be a COO or a CEO or whatever you want to call managers. If you're going to have those roles, but yet you started the firm and it's your firm, it's your vision for the firm, then there has to be a lot of alignment there between you or all the partners and this leadership or leader that you are empowering. If that's there and you know that they are, they're not going to always make every decision the way you would do it. And in fact, that's good because that you hired them to, to use their expertise. But I think that that alignment has to be there. I've seen it work incredibly well in some places. And I've also seen it, as you say, kind of, erode and become toxic. But I, my first, when I see that, I hear that, my first thought is, is there alignment between those core people? Yeah. What I found is no matter how much I'm going to let the COO or operations manager do the day-to-day managing, I still have to meet with them and give guidance and share a vision. And, and I finally just, it was some book I read by Patrick Lencioni, I think some, some temptations of a CEO or something, but I, I think yep. I finally occurred to me, if I want to run my own business, then there's uh, own my own business. There's certain things I just have to do and providing the high level guidance, culture, leadership is part of it. And if I don't want to do that, then I need to go work for someone else. Wish I can't just wish it into existence. I have to put the work in. That's right. That, that's right. I mean, it's your influence and it's your organization unless you're okay with it becoming what that other person also envisions it to be, 
then you need to have your influence there or it, it's your vision is not going to be manifested if you're not having influence on the direction. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So here's something I'm strong. I'm going to ask for some free advice here because I'm I'm personally struggling with this. How do we develop our mid-level leaders? Something that I really love. I think that the reason I love it is seeing mid-level leaders developed gives them a career path. It gives them a sense of ownership in the firm and meaning and purpose. When you take someone who has been a great team member, a great soldier, they've got leadership ability. You elevate them, you pour into them. You're really giving someone a huge gift. And I think it's what we're called to. I think it's a part of what we've got to do in organizations for our own health. But I also think it's, it's fantastic for that person or for that group of people. So I think what you do is you identify, you don't just look and say, Oh, well, what's the, who's the paralegal that's done the very best job, the highest performer? The old adage, right, of a great salesperson doesn't necessarily make a great sales manager. And I think that is very sage, very wise advice. Now, they've got to have credibility in their domain. They've got to be good at what they do, and other people have to trust them and have to believe that they can speak well enough into the content, into the domain of what they're doing, that they have that credibility. But you've got to look for leadership ability. There's got to be a way to, and there is a way to find who are your leaders that you can pour into. And then you begin to pull them, you elevate them, and you begin to bring them in and you create a mid-level leadership team meeting. And even if you don't, you haven't named them yet, right? You're pulling them in, you're beginning to talk to them about where you see the firm going. And well, now we have seven paralegals. We feel like we need to have a paralegal team lead. And Mary, you have shown a great deal of aptitude. We would like to talk to you more about this. And here's our thoughts. So you start creating that once a week or once every two week meeting. You start talking about the needs of those seven paralegals, how we can lead them well, what are the issues they're facing, how can we equip them to do their jobs better, what are some processes and systems we can improve. Uh, Mary, I want you to start being intentional with caring for these seven people. Do you believe you've got it in you to become a leader and not just a coworker and not just a friend? I want you to know their kids, I want their kids' names, I want you to know what's going on in their lives so that you can really care for them, so that you can really love them, and that you can demand high performance of them. I think that process of creating that mid-level leadership, it's not rocket science. It's, again, about intentionality, about identifying talent, and then begin to nurture that talent. Then you name them. You say, now Mary is our paralegal team lead. Everybody knows it. It's declared. It's defined. And now she's a part of that level. She's a part of that group. And every week or every other week, she is meeting with other leaders. They're sharing issues in their departments. They're sharing about the processes, they're sharing about people, they're looking at ways to get better, and they're hearing from this is where I think a COO or a CEO or you know someone who is has a an executive presence in the firm, you might call him your operations manager, director of ops, whatever, they should be leading that meeting and they should be capable of pouring into and creating more leaders. I one of the best books on leadership out there in my opinion is Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. Um, every great uh, COO, director of ops, CEO, they need to be a multiplier. And that's what you're doing with mid-level leaders. You're observing their aptitude, pulling them up, and then you're multiplying them into higher leadership. I got a flight to Europe coming up this weekend, so I'm going to definitely get that book. And Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. So you had a couple words in there that have been a real struggle of mine. You talked about both loving your people and demanding high performance. And you know, I'm really a lot better at loving my people than I am at demanding high performance. I, I always yeah. feel guilty about it. I've been I've been getting better at it, but it's uh why are they both important and how do you do it? Yeah, great, phenomenal question. In fact, I, I, I kind of have built my career on this idea and I think both are critical and we all lean one way or the other, more so. 
And so we've got to be balanced at them. Why are they both important? Well, I think the love people part, that depends on your value system and kind of where how, your worldview, how you see life and the world and people. For me, I just believe people are valuable. I believe in human worth. And I enjoy, it's taken me a long time to really feel like, yes, I can stake my claim here and say this, and it is right, even in the business world. I want to create more than just a profitable business. That For me, I want to create a team of people that I am a part of making their lives better, and they are a part of making our clients' lives better. That's important to me. Profitability is as well. Now, I, I want to be ultra profitable. And so I think the loving people element has to be based on what you believe about people and you got to care for them. And look, by the way, both of these things, and I won't go into, again, the minutiae of it, but it starts with hiring. You got to think this way and design your hiring systems right so that, I always say this, so that you can love and demand high performance. Because if you don't have the right people, I, I learned this from Nick Saban, he recruits people to his team right, that will respond to his leadership style. And I think that some people naturally do that, but that's a brilliant thing to think through, right, to give heed to. Recruit people onto your team that will respond to your leadership style. So for me, that means I need people that they will respond to genuine care, but they also want to win and they don't mind being coached. So that hiring piece and getting the right folks is, is a critical piece. So you love them because of their inherent worth and because you want to create a really awesome environment. You want to create this where people love what they do, where they come to work and enjoy it. Right. I think that makes for the best. That's more fun. And I think it leads to more success. The flip side is the high performance. I believe when you love people well, you earn the right to demand high performance. Again, if you've chosen the right people who are responsive to that style. So demand high performance is just like a coach. Right? Every great coach, their players look back and when you hear them year after year, you hear their players say, yeah, I know coach so-and-so, you know, he really cared about, it. he was hard on us. He wanted excellence. He wanted perfection, but he, he cared about us. He loved us. So a great coach not only wants to develop the potential of every one of his team members or her team members, uh, whether that be the first stringer or the third stringer, but they also are aware of talent and they also want to win a championship. They want to be the best. They're highly competitive. And so they, they're not going to put the third stringer in a first stringer role. And sometimes they have to make the difficult decision to cut a player when the player is not in alignment, is not going to be able to be high performing on their team. That's a tough decision. Uh, and it may not feel like a loving decision, but it has to be made if a championship is going to be won. And at the end of the day, it's probably best for that player as well. So I think it is that balance. I do like the coaching analogy. It fits to me that you can do both, but it takes somebody who's naturally inclined to want to care for people, but is also naturally inclined to compete and to win and understands what that means. I don't know how you can be a really effective leader if you don't have some element of both of those in you. And I've noticed that coaching is very different than teaching. Like, I'm a really good teacher. Like, I can sit there and explain something so someone can understand what I'm talking about, like giving a lecture. But coaching is, you know, letting them try it and then having the patience to, like, no, do it this way. No, you didn't do this right. Go do it this way. It does not come naturally to me. I mean, right. how, do, how does one either develop in themselves or find people that have that skill set? Yeah, well, I think that's a phenomenal observation on your part that there is a difference there. Yeah, I, I think that it can be developed. I think the coaching skill can be developed. You begin to realize what the differences are. One of the first steps that I see in, in leaders, whether they were a great leader to start with and they had natural ability or they grew into that role, which almost everybody has to grow into it to some degree, is self-awareness, a recognition that I need to study this. I need to look for mentors. I need to look for examples. I need to look for expertise in this realm. I need to read books, watch TED Talks, go to conferences, have good conversations with people who are doing it better than I am. That humility of saying, I need this help, I want to get better, is for me kind of square one on that. Once you do that, I think you start to realize where your gaps are. And I think most intelligent, well-intentioned people 
that have made it to that level already have the ability to grow into their gaps. And I think all of us have to do that to some degree. If you can, if you realize, look, I'm just wired a certain way, or I just don't want to do this. This isn't the role that I want to play in my organization. Then you begin to look for people who are capable of that and who have had that uh, ability. Look, I've seen a lot, a lot of law firms, of course, hire non-lawyer COOs. I've seen a lot of COOs that have been hired from outside industries where really they had leadership ability. They were, they were, they were healthy and successful leaders. And they were then just brought into the legal space and they learned our industry. I think that that model can absolutely work. On the flip side, I've also seen some really healthy COOs, successful COOs that were lawyers that had natural leadership ability and honestly weren't that great a lawyer. Maybe they weren't the best lawyer. They weren't the best trial guy or gal around. And really, they they were more wired to be a COO or a CEO uh, rather than to practice law. And that's a huge benefit when a firm needs that. So if you don't have it, if you're not willing to develop it, or you don't want to be in that role in your firm, then I think you've got to go out and find it. And uh, you've got to look in places where leaders are found, not just where legal specialists are found. I, I agree 100%. Another, you and I talked some before the uh, we started, and another thing you said was every problem is a leadership problem. That really strikes me. I think maybe it was Tim Mackey. Somebody told me once that like everything that goes wrong at your law firm is there either because you are permitting it or because you're encouraging it. You know, yeah, one or the you, other. you either coached it or you allowed it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about every problem being a leadership problem. Yeah. You know, so I, again, these are things that over the years that I've just kind of thought about a lot and, and come to again, stake my claim and say, look, I I think this is true. I'm going to say this one pretty strongly. And at the end of the day, look, it's the same way I feel about my family. It's the same way I feel about a a team. It's the same way I'm going to feel about my business or about my law firm. What goes on there and how it develops and its level of success is on me. I'm the leader. If I own it, if I started it, if I'm the person who's responsible for it, then I'm responsible. I'm the one who has to make those decisions. And and I think this comes down a lot to this idea of taking fully on an ownership mentality and not being a victim, uh, not being a victim. You know, I, I do hear a lot of leaders, a lot of owners who complain about their teams a lot. Oh, well, this person, and they, they're lazy and they're kind of frustrated. And I always gently want to move them to a place of, you know, stop blaming your team. Now, you've got to correctly identify the issues on your team. But if you're a blamer by nature and you're pointing to everybody else, that's a problem. And that means that you're not taking on the responsibility or you think the solution is just to constantly fire people. You're constantly unhappy and disappointed with your people. That's another warning sign that the problem is you. Yeah. Every problem is a leadership problem simply means that we're the ones who have to find a way and great leaders find a way to win. They solve problems. They're very self-aware. They understand their own weaknesses, their own strengths, and they they are willing to do whatever is necessary and healthy to help their organization, to propel their organization to success. They do not blame. Uh, they see things as clearly as possible. They try to work out the bias, and they're a problem solver, and they're a visionary, and they take it on themselves to do what's necessary to get things fixed. I think that's a huge, huge, huge quality that's necessary in a leader. So I want to, I'm going to ask this question in two parts. Part one is if someone owns a law firm and they want to get better as a leader, they want to improve their culture, they want to create a leadership team. What are some resources that you could point them to, to learn how to do that? Yeah. So I, I think, in more and more in our industry, and this is in the plaintiff's industry, but this goes, leadership is not unique to plaintiff's firms. And so I think this stuff is available uh, to people, to, to folks from any practice area, any side of the aisle, so to speak, in the legal industry. There are organizations out there now and coaches and consulting firms. There are consortiums, there are groups that get together. Some of the, you know, the Vista BPNI group, Best Practices and Innovation. It's a gathering 
of law firm leaders to talk about, you know, a small group of people to talk about what's going on in their firm. Pilma with Ken Hardison, they do a similar thing with their mastermind groups. I know Mike Morrison, Fireproof, they do a similar thing. All of these uh, organizations that I just mentioned also offer conferences where you can go and learn about. I mean, I'm leaving today to go to Pilma uh, uh, in New Orleans. There's going to be thousands of people there, and I'm going to give this talk on uh, every problem is a leadership problem. There are resources out there for those things. There are also direct coaches. I'm a big fan of a guy named Andy Bailey with Petra Coaching. There are corporate coaches. I do coaching. Uh, Tim does coaching. I think Chad Dudley does some coaching. Mike Morse does coaching. You know, there, there are resources out there in our industry and across practice area lines that if you want to just grow your leadership, you can do it. And by the way, those are just resources within the industry. That's not to, not to mention all the great stuff that's out there that is, you know, leader, leadership is a transcendent skill. It's not unique to our, our niche. You know, so you've got folks out there like Simon Sinek and Liz Wiseman and Patrick Lencioni, I mean, on and on and on that are focusing on leadership. There are lots of resources. Second part of that question, because a lot of our listeners are not law firm owners, or at least not law firm owners yet. If, if someone's at a law firm, you know, let's say one to 10 year lawyer, they're not in charge, but they both want to develop themselves as as leaders within their firm and also to to try to, you know, from within, maybe not from the top, but, you know, encourage their, their leadership to, to improve their culture. Uh, what are some things that you'd recommend that people do? Love that question. So the first thing that I always tell an emerging leader, somebody who wants to be a leader or who sees the path unfolding ahead, ahead of them, is to really think through this concept of ownership mentality. I believe that, that our culture uh, meaning American popular culture and workplace culture over the years has developed an adversarial uh, structure or, or positioning between individuals and the companies that they work for. And I think that's super unhealthy. In other words, you know, people are skeptical of the place they work for and the place they work for is skeptical of them and cautious. And we're, you know, there's a self-protective environment that often develops and you got to get yours. And the company's some, you know, Firms sometimes are abusing their people and people taking advantage of the firm. That stuff is very disheartening and saddening to me. At the end of the day, if you, you got to be a part of a great organization, you're a, a team member, you want to make sure you're in a place as much as possible that is going to allow you to become, uh, it's going to foster your potential. If that's there, then you need to uh, embrace an ownership mentality. And what I mean by that is don't think like an employee. Don't think like someone who's just trying to get the most you can out of this organization. Think about what it would be like to be the owner of this organization and take on that mentality. In other words, do everything you can to see that organization be successful. Even if it's not, you know, like I, I tell all my team members uh, whenever I've been a COO or, or, you know, you see a piece of paper on the floor, you see a client in the foyer. That's not somebody else's client. That's not somebody else's piece of paper. That's yours. Go out there and greet that person. Say hi as you walk by. See if there's anything you can do to help them. Pick up the piece of paper on the floor. Clean the toilets if you need, if they need to be cleaned. Do what it takes to help the whole organization move forward. That's what leaders do. And no matter what your title is. So take on an ownership mentality first. That is the absolute first start. And I would say, even if you're in an organization who doesn't give you is not fostering your potential, I still believe you should take on an ownership mentality. Now, it may mean that sooner or later you need to take that to another organization. You need to take your skills to somewhere else because the place you're at isn't fostering who you are. But I still think you should lead with an ownership mentality and function that way because I think it's the right thing to do. And it's always going to make the people and the organization around you better, which is the hallmark of a great leader. So first, take on the ownership mentality. and then just like any other leader, start to get into these resources. Read these books. Go out and get two books, Multipliers and Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Multipliers is Liz Wiseman. Read those two books and you'll be well on your way to getting your heart and your mindset right about what it means to be a leader, regardless of whether you have the title yet. Bill, thank you. That is awesome. And I will tell you, as a law firm owner, it is so great when you see people take on that ownership mentality and you see people come in with 
hey, here's a better way to do things. Hey, why can't yeah. we, even if sometimes someone says, here's a better way to do things. And we have to say, well, we tried that before here. It didn't work. It still makes me happy to hear it because you care and you want to make it better. And it makes me want to think, how can I develop this person that's and bring it. them up more? That's so right, Michael. And that's what I tell people when that ownership mentality talk that I give. I say, look, when owners see that in their people, good owners want to pour into that. They they appreciate it and they want a team full of those folks. So they're probably going to reinforce it with with reward and with a lot of positive appreciation. So that's a win-win. That's a great synergism when that happens. And unfortunately, we're kind of hitting about the amount of time that one of these podcasts takes. But if someone wants to learn more from you or maybe even work for you, how can people find you? Well, you can go to Vista Consulting. Just Google Vista Consulting. Uh, that's one way. I've got about eight jobs. Uh, that's one <laughs> of them. Uh, but that's one way that you can find me. They're also more than welcome to reach out to me directly. Biggs period William at gmail.com. And you can also call me or text me 979 219 one four zero four. And lastly, if you wanted to check out my personal website, you can do that at Biggs A N D and Biggs and Associates.com. Bill, thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you more. We've really been hitting it off both on this interview and before. And Ooh, I hope Michael. everyone got something out of this and that you join us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.